Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Australia in the World podcast. It's Wednesday the 11th of October today and the topic I want to talk about is Australia's defence policy. Alan and I had planned an episode earlier in the year to coincide with the release of the Defence Strategic Review, so obviously that couldn't happen. So I'm circling back to it now, but given it's been almost six months since the DSR was released, I thought the podcast could add value by bringing in an outside perspective. So I'm very pleased to be joined by Zach Cooper. Zach is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and also teaches at Princeton University, where he completed his master's and PhD with me as his classmate, as it turns out. Prior to AEI, he was a senior fellow at CSIS and co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. He's also worked in the US government at the National Security Council and at the Pentagon. And he's also a podcaster, co-hosting the podcast Net Assessment. But the reason he's the ideal person, I think, for today's conversation is he has spent a lot of time thinking about Australian defence policy over the past decade. And given how fundamental the US is to what we do, I think a US perspective can add a lot of value. So, Zach, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Darren. Uh, I will just say, I'll correct you right off the bat. The ideal person to do this would be Alan Gintel. And um, (laughs) I I miss him, as I know you do. And... um, I'm happy to get a chance to be on the podcast, though, because I I know how much he cared about it. So uh, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks very much. Well, we're going to start, as I love to do, with a bit of theory. Let's call it Defense Policy 101. Now, Alan used to say that he was a foreign policy analyst rather than a strategist, was the word he used. Um, But today I really want to dive into strategy and start with a basic conceptual framework for how a country like Australia should think about its defence policy. So where would you begin in constructing that kind of framework? What kind of questions do you need to answer? So the place I would start is with the tension between two longstanding trends in Australian thinking, which is the forward defence school and the defence of Australia school. And I would characterise this as a tension between whether Australia needs to Uh, defend forward, by which I mean uh, work in particular with its closest ally, the United States, and deploy wherever the United States deploys, uh, as as Australians and Americans are fond of saying, we fought together in every major conflict for the last century. And and that's uh, for good reason, in part because Australians wanted to make sure that Americans knew that they were there when they were needed, so that when Americans were needed to come to Australia's aid, they would remember this history. So that, that of course, is the forward defense school. And then you've got the defense of Australia school, which is, you know, I think, frankly, in some ways, a more traditional way of thinking about defense, where the objective is really to defend the approaches to Australia and Australian territory itself. And of course, in Australian history, there's been a, a healthy tension between these two. And I think what we're seeing now is the the fact that actually increasingly these two are coming together, by which I mean, for a long time, what forward defense meant was Australia deploying in the Middle East, 
right? Or, or frankly, well outside of what I would think of as Australia's region. Mm. But as the United States pivots or rebalances or whatever we want to say these days, back to Asia, to the Indo-Pacific, actually forward defense increasingly means defending Australia or the approaches to Australia. And so I think what's particularly fascinating about this moment for an American watching Australia's strategic debate is that in many ways, the core tenets of Australia's approach are actually aligning together in a natural way where they they both fit together from an Australian strategic standpoint, but also they match up pretty closely with what America's own priorities are. So so in some ways, I, I think this is a uh, very neat uh, way to package Australian policy. And some of what you saw in the Defense Strategic Review, I think, was a, is a bit of a shift to try and say, look, we don't have to choose between defense of Australia or forward defense. The, the two are increasingly one and the same. So we'll get to the DSR in a moment, but what was fascinating to me about that answer is you sort of went straight to that tension between forward defence and defence of Australia. Whereas if I was building a framework from the ground up, I would start with sort of the great and powerful friend um, sort of concept that Alan outlines in his book that we've never had the capabilities ourselves to defend our expansive territory. Um, And so we've always relied upon someone else to help provide the defense of the homeland and so the the fact that you've sort of glossed over that and gone straight to well how do we best do that by demonstrating either you know a loyalty and partnership with with that friend or by doing more in our own sort of backyard or in our own around our own territory sort of suggests that yeah that's not something that's even up for conversation you know is that your assessment that that there really is no realistic path to us doing anything sufficient um, in our defence policy space that does not involve working very closely with a a, a very large and friendly um, uh, foreign country to help aggregate our capabilities to get what we need? I'm not sure I actually think that's true. I, I can imagine a world in which Australia would have significant independent defence capabilities and make itself so difficult for a regional state to mess with, let's say in the technical term, Mm. that Australia could defend itself without substantial external involvement. I think, however, that the cost of doing so would be prohibitively high at the moment. Um, It would be a cost in, in terms of Australia having to spend a huge amount more money on defense than it does. No, obviously, Australia has been committing to increased defense budgets, which as an American, I'm supportive of. But I I think we would be talking about many multiples of what Australia spends on defense now to have that kind of capability. And of course, you might have to go down the road that others in the region are thinking about of considering nuclear weapons as an ultimate backstop. And so I think for budgetary reasons for political and diplomatic reasons, the cost of a fully independent Australian defense capability are probably not worth it if, and this is a big if, you have an ally you can rely on. And 
you know this history far better than I do. Australia has found out the hard way what happens when you think you have an ally you can rely on and find out in the middle of a major war that actually you don't. And I think the real risk going forward from an Australian point of view is, I think the United States is an ally you can rely on. I'm not 100% sure that that's the case 10, 20 years from now. I certainly hope it would be. That would be my objective as a policymaker if I were in government. But but I think you have to acknowledge that there are some political circumstances in the United States that are deeply concerning to U.S. allies and partners. And Australia probably isn't at the top of that list, but but Australia would be affected like like everyone else. Yeah, and we'll come uh, to Donald Trump as one vector of that uncertainty a little bit later on. But yeah, I think that's a, a good way of framing it, that you have immense costs that you know you would have to pay in order to fundamentally reorient. And I would add to that, you know, the idea that we'd probably have maybe less influence in the region because we'd be so focused on our own um, sort of own individual defence, which you then can, I guess, discount somewhat, or perhaps the alternative strategy of maintaining close ties with the US has to be discounted from the risk that it could all fall apart. And so you're making, you pay these immense costs up front that might also, might provide you security when you really need it, but not guaranteed. Or do you go with a more potentially cost-effective option with uh, some costs attached about policy autonomy that we'll talk about in a bit, but with maybe a bigger risk um, of unreliability, sort of you're choosing your poison, aren't you, about what what's the best balance uh, of those trade-offs? I think that's right. And I think you also have to be clear-eyed about where you think the threat is coming from, right? I mean, let's be honest. If the threat is Australia being invaded by the Chinese Communist Party, mm-hmm. I, I think that is pretty hard to imagine any time in the near future. And there are a lot of countries between Australia and Mm -hmm. China that would give you a significant amount of warning time before you were talking about a territorial invasion. Now, of course, you could have encroachment in the air or maritime domain, and that that is, I think, more possible to imagine. But but I I think in many ways, the, the real challenge that you'd have to think about in the near term is maybe not so much a China challenge, but you know tensions between Australia and some of its closer neighbors. And this is part of why I think one of the alternatives is also for Australia to tie itself, not just to the United States potentially, but more closely to others in the region to ensure that, yes, even if you can't manage the China challenge on your own, that you don't get another regional challenge that requires a significant increase in Australian defense capabilities in the mm. near term. Um, so so that you've got at least a little bit more warning time before something arises. That's interesting because I think, yeah, certainly public conversation about those types of risks has really died down over the past couple of decades. You know, we're not so much worried about the arc of instability as we were in you know, the 80s and the 90s. What I thought you were going to say was that if we were going to write down a list of that a good defense policy has got to start with a list of the things that are most likely to happen that pose a major threat to the country's security and the, the that list at the top of that list are wars happening in the region presumably instigated by china or where china is a protagonist um, that nevertheless have major consequences for us in terms of closing down shipping lanes or in totally remodeling the order in ways that are not favorable to our interests and that if that's at the top and that's got the highest percentage chance of happening that has to be factored into our choice of strategy 
assessing that close ties with the US and all, with all the pros and cons that go with that is the best for handling that set of risks, potentially also, I guess, what deterioration of close neighbours relationships like Indonesia um, is, you know, it's at the top. And we have to then think about, well, if, if being invaded by China is lower down, perhaps even, quote unquote, abandonment by the US as we experienced in World War II um, from the British, you know, the, the chances of us being, you know, being invaded by China and then also having the US abandon us at the same time make this go down even lower. And we then need to think about everything that flows from that from that set of, of rankings. Is that is that what you're saying? Well, I guess what I'm saying is slightly different. So if you if you read, you know, a lot of Australian strategic pronouncements, including the Defense Strategic Review, right? The the top two priorities that they'll often articulate is the need to be able to defend Australian territory, right? And and I think that's a pretty obvious one. I think almost every country begins with that. Yeah. Um, but then the second priority is often to um, prevent an opponent from projecting power into the northern approaches to Australia, right? And and let's be candid about who could do this. I mean, China would be the number one threat, right? And we obviously have seen Chinese ships operating in the northern approaches. So there's reason to, to want to watch those areas closely. But I think we, we also have to acknowledge that those are approaches that go through Indonesian waters largely. Mm. And so if you could have a close relationship with the Indonesians, you could feel a lot more confident, right, about both having warning about that challenge and having a partner to work with. I think the, the risk is in part, you know, if the Indonesia relationship is more difficult, um, then you lose a little bit of, of both that warning and maybe some of the capability to actually um, project power yourself into those approaches. And, and it becomes a bit more difficult operationally if you've got a partner that doesn't want you operating in those maritime regions or those air regions. So I, I, I think from, from an American standpoint, there are lots of things that we want from Australia. But if, if I were sitting in Canberra and trying to think about strategically what was most critical going forward, you know, the three relationships I would be thinking about at the very top of my list would be the United States, China, and Indonesia. And although there are others that obviously matter, I think those are, are central to this question of uh, an adversary's ability to project power into the territory of Australia or the waters around Australia. Okay, well, let's then turn to the merging of those sort of two separate doctrines that you say are kind of aligning more, Defence of Australia and forward defence. Can you sort of talk through a bit about how you're seeing that unfolding um, in the Defence Strategic Review or elsewhere and what new tensions are being created as a result? So for many years, when... Australians talked about their value to the United States. The thing you would hear, and you still hear this sometimes, but you hear it less, is this common trope that I kind of detest, that Australia has fought alongside the United States in every major conflict going back 100 years to World War I. And, and it, I don't dislike it because it's not true. Of, of course, it's, it's accurate. I dislike it because it actually robs Australia of agency in some ways. If you're an American listening to that uh, and you don't particularly pay attention to Australia, what you mostly hear is, hey, let, this is great news. We don't have to pay any attention to Australia because they'll go literally wherever we go. Mm. 
And I've never thought that was the best approach for an American ally to take um, because you never want to be an afterthought, right? Um, or an assumed contributor to whatever it is that the United States is doing. And so I've always thought that this line put Australia in a strange strategic position vis-a-vis -vis the United States. I think what you're hearing now is something very different, right? Which is actually the United States acknowledging that we need Australia. And this is not something that we typically used to talk about very much in, in Washington, right? Australia wasn't on the, the top of the list of countries that we talked about, um, in part because Australia was just seen as dependable and always there. And that was sort of the end of the story. Um, but now the discussion is much more about the need for the United States to work closely with Australia and about how to do that. And I think the reason that that's happened is because the U.S. is focusing more on the Indo-Pacific and we have a small number of really reliable allies in the region. And Australia is at the top of that list, you know, alongside Japan and Korea. And so we're looking to those three countries in particular to step up and, and to do more with each other, with us, with the rest of the region. So the good thing is that whereas in the past, uh, forward defense meant going to the rest of the world where Australia's strategic interests weren't so directly involved, but, but having to show the U.S. that Australia would do that anyways, now, what the United States is looking for is Australia to basically do more in the Indo-Pacific, much of which is to defend itself. But I do think there's a tension here, which you know well, and, and I, I know listeners will have thought about a lot, which is defense of Australia and forward defense are still slightly different. So let me give you the one scenario that I worry about, which is a Taiwan scenario. So I think if you ask a lot of Americans what would happen in the Taiwan scenario, they assume a substantial contribution from Australia. And if I were an American strategist, I wouldn't make that assumption, but I think a lot of Americans don't pay that close attention to what happens in allied capitals, especially not in allied capitals that are seeing, seen as being very dependable. And so there's sort of an assumption that actually, you know, Australia would be with the United States in a Taiwan contingency, which is, something I know we'll get to when we talk about nuclear-powered submarines, but this assumption is built into how some people think about U.S.-Australia defense cooperation, that one reason we cooperate with Australia is because it would be there not just to deter a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, but to fight and win one if we had to. So I think this is one area where there is a bit of a tension still between the forward defense model and the defense of Australia model, because you know, my view would be actually, if I were sitting in Canberra, I would be quite anxious about getting drawn into a Taiwan scenario that, as you know well, is quite far from Australia. Um, and so I, I think there are still tensions between these concepts, but they may be um, a little less clear than they used to be, right? Th these were bright lines in the past and they're, they're not anymore. Let's get to submarines and to AUKUS. How do you understand AUKUS conceptually on these questions? Like w what is its answer to this tension? And it sounds like you're going to say, well, the answer is a, a leaning more towards forward defense because the whole point of nuclear powered subs is that they can go a long way from Australia and do stuff. 
Is that kind of the best way of thinking about AUKUS conceptually before we get to the practicalities of it in terms of answering this tension? No. Okay. So I, I, so I'm, I, I have, as you know, uh, a view on AUKUS that I think is going to differ from many friends in Canberra. And so you're probably going to get attacked for Excellent. having me. Yeah. Um, so I am a fan of Australian nuclear-powered submarines. As you know, I wrote a report a decade ago suggesting that Australia should get Virginia-class submarines from the United States. Um, and I got pilloried for it in Sydney and in Canberra. And the logic at the time, and my logic still, has nothing to do with Taiwan. It's that if you actually look at Australia's strategic approaches, they are very far from the main operating ports that Australia uses, which are largely in the South. And even if you're talking about operating from Stirling and Perth, it is a very long way to the Sunda and Lombok Straits. And if you want to be there and get there quickly and have lots of time on station, nuclear powered submarines are much better equipped to do this. So I think the strategic logic for the submarines is not for them to go mess around in the South China Sea or near Taiwan. It's actually because they have to go really far to get to the strategic approaches to Australia. And I worry that some in Washington have sort of missed that basic logic, that the purpose of pillar one of nuclear powered submarines for some in Washington is actually for Australia to work with the United States and to go wherever it is in a sort of forward defense model, not in a defense of Australia model, which is how I thought of the submarines. Now, I mean, we can have a larger debate about other aspects of the submarine program, but this is where I think it's incumbent upon Australians to insist that this is a sovereign capability. And if the United States is helping Australia to get nuclear powered submarines, that should not require Australia to contribute them in an operation in the Taiwan Strait, because if there is a Taiwan Strait contingency, the Australian strategic community is going to want those submarines to do exactly what they should be doing from a defensive standpoint, which is protecting the approaches to Australia. And they will not be free to go venturing far north to other regions. So I think this is a really difficult tension. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding in Washington about why Australia would want nuclear powered submarines in the first place. Was that tension avoidable? If it's true that we do need nuclear subs to do defense of Australia, is there a way of navigating that given our alliance on the US and maybe the British for the technology without sending that signal that we're going to essentially be ready to contribute to a Taiwan type scenario. I guess another way of asking this is, yeah. is, is there, is it what looking back conceptually, is there a better solution than nuclear subs to do this? And this is before we get to the, how we actually do it practically. I'll, that'll be my next question. Well, I think there are two issues that you're raising. The first is why it is that people in the United States might think that these aren't sovereign capabilities that Australia is going to use for defensive purposes. And I think part of the reason is that because the deal that has been made on the so-called optimal pathway involves the United States giving Australia selling, but, but really giving Australia three to five of its most advanced submarines, which keep in mind, 
is a large percentage of the active fleet because the U.S. only has, you know, 50-ish advanced submarine attack class submarines. And those um, submarines, many of them are not operational right now because we have a huge backlog of maintenance. And so we actually don't have that many operational submarines in the world or the region. And so when you talk about providing three to five of them to Australia in the next decade, this is actually a really hard strategic choice for the United States. It essentially means giving up capability at the time that, you know, we could talk about timelines, but but my friends Mike Beckley and, and Hal Brand say this is the danger zone. Yep. And and you're giving up the best American military capability in the middle of the danger zone. Now, if the United States and Australia could convincingly argue that actually they were expanding capability in that time frame, I think there'd be a lot of support here in Washington from every corner to do this. The problem they've run into is that if you actually run the numbers on pillar one of AUKUS, it looks pretty clear that actually, unless you consider these submarines to be not a sovereign Australian capability, but something that would be contributed in a China contingency, that the US is actually losing capability in this time frame. So I think that has led some people to try and fudge this issue. And when they get pushed to say, well, we'll, we'll try and address the maintenance backlog in that time frame. But if we don't, of course, they're, you know, they're Australian submarines, but they could also still contribute. So I, I think this messiness is in part due to the fact that the optimal pathway doesn't look quite as optimal as maybe people were hoping it would. The second issue you raised is whether there's another capability that could address the the need to um, be able to hold at risk ships and aircraft passing through Australia's northern approaches. That, I think, is a much more difficult defense question. Um, I will say, at the cost of the submarines that we're talking about now in the hundreds of billions of dollars... I do think there are other capabilities that start to look attractive, which is not to say that I think Australia should cancel any of the nuclear-powered submarine conversation, but is to say that I, I think there is merit in actually doing some analytical work that would say, okay, you know, if we're talking about buying eight, 10 submarines at a very large expense, what could that buy us in terms of either unmanned undersea systems or um, aircraft, long-range aircraft, whether manned or unmanned, that can hold ships' aircraft at risk at great range. I am sure that many people in the Australian Defense Department have already done some of this work. I will just say very little of that is public, and so it's very hard to judge from the outside what the cost-benefit analysis would be on a different way to try and hold Australia's northern approaches um, at risk if you were worried about an adversary trying to pass through them. Shipbuilding. What's fascinating about what that first point is that it seems like the sovereignness, the degree of, of independence of our capability is now a function of how well you guys can build and repair ships. Now, I know we're supposed to be contributing to that in some sense, but I guess I'm looking for your comment on the practicalities of this happening. You sounded skeptical, but can you but can you say a bit more about can this be done, or is this an inevitable 
costs that we have to bear that we'll erode, erode at least in an expectation sense the sovereignty the level of sovereignty sovereign control that we have over this capability i think we and i don't just mean the us and australia but i mean all of the advanced industrial democracies are heading down the wrong pathway in terms of defense capabilities which is that we are building our own separate systems in most cases that are largely duplicative and we are dealing with um, competitors including china who have massive production capability and so producing small numbers of unique platforms is clearly the wrong path forward so if it were up to me i think the logical thing to do and i think this would be true on ships it is true on aircraft on a whole range of things would be for a small group of countries you know australia the us would probably be in there japan would probably be in there maybe even korea um, germany france uk maybe a couple of other nato partners to think really seriously about ways to minimize the number of platforms that we're fielding so that we can buy them at scale and therefore decrease the unit costs. So what would that mean? Well, on submarines, it would mean building a larger number of boats of similar designs. So where have we ended up with the optimal pathway? Australia is going to be operating Collins class submarines in small numbers for a little while, and then operating some handful of Virginia class submarines for a little while, and then a relatively small number of AUKUS class submarines for the future. That is just not my vision of what efficiency looks like. And I'm not saying I have a better pathway to deal with the political realities of needing to build boats in Adelaide. Um, I'm just saying, like, actually, if you took many steps back and said, how do we want to compete effectively with China, which is just churning out ships? This is probably not the way to do it. Now, one path forward would have been for the United States to be able to build enough Virginia class submarines that we could supply Australia's need at least for a little while while we worked together on a future submarine that we all could have bought, whether that means Australia, the United States, and the UK, or even a larger consortium, whatever that would mean. But, but that isn't the path we followed. And unfortunately, this is now stuck in an American domestic political dynamic, which is that Roger Wicker, who's the senator, the leading Republican uh, in the Senate on the Armed Services Committee, has thought rightly for years that the United States was underinvesting in shipbuilding and in particular underinvesting in the submarine industrial base. The United States has been supposed to buy, you know, roughly two uh, nuclear powered uh, attack submarines a year. It's producing about 1.2, maybe 1.3 if we're lucky. And yet other people have been saying that we should go to three submarines a year because this is our most advanced capability. And unfortunately, AUKUS Pillar 1 has now gotten stuck in this American political debate with Roger Wicker, who's very powerful in the Senate, rightly saying 
why are we not spending more to build a shipbuilding capacity in the United States? Um, and instead, what we're getting is a, a, I'm very thankful for Australia's contribution to American shipbuilding capability and to our shared maintenance capability. But let's be candid. This is not on the order of magnitude of what Roger Wicker was looking for, which was tens of billions of dollars. And so I, I think the real challenge for us now going forward is the plans that we have on shipbuilding um, are not don't appear to be plans that we can easily satisfy. And so right when we're talking about giving Australia some of our best capabilities is the same time that Republicans in the Senate are saying, wait, we can't build these things and now we're giving some of them away. It just doesn't make sense to them. And and to be really honest, I, I, I think people should have seen this coming. I think it was quite foreseeable. This conversation is perking up my political economy antenna. So I'll ask a, a broader question on this. What does Australia need to learn about defence industry policy? Um, and and I'm asking that also more broadly, industrial policy more broadly. I mean, I think of export controls on semiconductors, which are designed, I suppose, to hamper Chinese battlefield capability on some level. Like, is all this now part of military strategy? I wish I had a good answer for that. I think if I knew more about industrial policy, I'd probably, you know, be in Australia busily advising some some smart defense firms. The challenge here is that actually um, a lot of this, it's both domestic politics, but it's also, you know, the corporate incentive structures. Obviously, a lot of the optimal pathway decision had to do with a political dynamic in Adelaide. And a lot of the decisions uh, and the explanation for why the U.S. isn't doing what I'm saying about working with allies and partners to field these shared capabilities is that the um, limitations on the U.S. being able to provide advanced systems, even to our closest allies, are really serious, which is why Australia is building some capabilities on its own without U.S. involvement with U.S. defense contractors so that it doesn't have to go through all this red tape. So I, I think we're nearing the point where these industrial base issues are becoming real serious national security concerns. But as we have seen with both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 in AUKUS, there is not yet the political appetite in Washington to address these issues head on. And so I, I am very worried about the path we're heading down. Um, but I don't know that there are any easy solutions because these are fundamentally political bureaucratic issues and the incentive structures are just so complex and deeply ingrained in in the companies in the congress and indeed in the in basic workforce as well so i think these are really hard issues to solve let's zoom out a bit further i've always wanted to ask this question about alliance management generally like what are our by our mean australia's comparative advantages and its weaknesses in, in our U.S. alliance versus that, that, that um, alliances that Washington has with other partners around the world? Like, what do we do well? Um, do we wield influence uh, commensurate with our size? Um, how do you think about sort of those basic alliance dynamics, us compared to other countries? My sense is that the most advantageous part of Australia as an ally is that it provides strategic depth. And the United States doesn't have a lot of this in a sense. Yeah, we're all the way across the Pacific from China, but at the end of the day, we're relying on a very small number of relatively small islands 
And there is no way to address that reality by, well, I mean, I guess if we were the Chinese, we would just make new islands, but, but that's not the American way. Uh, so I think Australia geographically is hugely important to provide strategic depth, right? So it's sanctuary for U.S. forces when they um, need to spend time refitting, uh, refueling, you know, doing maintenance. You're, that geographic factor, I think, is probably the most important from an American warfighting standpoint. Now, of course, Australia has lots of benefits beyond that, you know, having to do with its diplomatic engagement in, in various parts of the region, whether that's in the Pacific or parts of Southeast Asia. But I, I think if you if you just are asking a very big picture question, um, what does the United States need most from Australia? It needs geographic strategic depth. Mm. And, and that is why the access to the bear bases is critical. The improvements at Perth and the ability for the U.S. to operate out of Perth is critical. Those um, those posture changes, I think, are priority number one for Washington. My answer to that question goes in a very different direction, and it's not coming from, I guess, a defense policy perspective. It's something that I've observed over the years is that there seems to be just a greater level of interpersonal trust and comfort around the Aussies. Like that, that Americans can almost sort of let their hair down in some sense when they're when they're meeting with us compared to certainly Europe, most European, maybe the British are an exception, and that we're just sort of fundamentally seen as of as two peas in a pod. And that, I guess, doesn't make a difference when it comes to hard choices and domestic politics, but it always struck me that that made us a little bit different. I mean, do you think that's that my experience is, is reflective of a broader truth or have I just got a biased sample in what I've experienced? You and I have talked about this a lot. So I, I think what that reflects is this basic sense in the United States that we kind of understand Australians, right? You're you're like cowboys that have a weird accent. <laughs> and therefore, there's there's not too much to have to study, right? And this is, look, some of this is language. Um, some of this is a bit cultural, but but it's different, right? With, with our other top tier allies in the region, with Japan, Korea, there are different sensitivities that are hard, right? And um, I think the view is that Australia is kind of easy. But to come back to kind of where we started, I think that's also the danger, yeah. right? Is that for a very long time, if you came to Washington and you said, who do I go to to talk about Australia? you would get a lot of blank stares. And now I can give you a handful of people that pay attention to Australia, but it is not a large crowd because the general view in Washington continues to be, well, why would you study Australia? They're kind of just like us, which I, I think is a little bit of a risk. If I were an Australian, I would think it was a risk because the reality is that Australia and the United States do have different interests. I think this would particularly be challenging if the United States went down a different political path with a leader like Donald Trump, who openly questions the value of U.S. alliances. Or, you know, there, there are many people in the Congress, especially on the Republican side, who are questioning whether the U.S. should be more isolationist. And I think if that happens, Australians will be very concerned uh, not surprisingly, but the 
the view from Washington may discount the level of concern among Australians because the view will be, yeah, they kind of understand us and they get how strange American politics are and they'll, they'll get through this. Because again, they've been fighting alongside us every time we needed them for 100 years. So why would you even put time and effort into the Australia relationship when you know they're going to be there at the end of the day? Well, you've foreshadowed my next question, which is a potential Trump re-election. You might say he's even the favorite at this point in time. I've got a two-parter on this. You also spend a lot of time watching the rest of the region. How do you think the region, and excluding China, especially thinking about other partners here, like Japan, Korea, how will they respond? Um, what will they do if Trump is re-elected? And the second part then is what advice would you give to the Australian government now to plan for that possibility? Those are two very hard questions. So I think you'd see two quite different responses from parts of the region. And, and this is this is going to be a blanket generalization that smart scholars in Australia will challenge. But I think you, from an American standpoint, you can see two different groups of countries in Asia. The group of countries in the last few years that China has just pressed too hard and that have decided essentially that they have to align more with the United States because they have no other option, right? Um, and in my mind, we're talking about Japan, Korea, Philippines, uh, Australia, to some degree, India, although I wouldn't say it's aligning with the United States more that it's aligning against China in some ways. But even, you know, Vietnam's kind of leaning a little bit more in this direction than it had been, not not choosing the U.S., but leaning more in that direction than one might have thought. Taiwan, I think, has has the political debate there has fundamentally changed. So you see a subset of the region where they've doubled down on the United States. And boy, if Donald Trump gets reelected, I think it's a fundamental challenge to their approach. Because you, you only double down on the United States if you think that the United States is going to be there. And so if Trump gets elected and starts trying to pull troops out of Korea again, and there are fewer people who can stop him from doing that than there were last time he was president, um, I think that drives some of those countries towards some really stark choices, right? By which I mean, you either have to think about realigning entirely, maybe you align with China because you don't think the US is an option, or um, you try and build your own independent capabilities. And let's be clear here that what this would mean for Korea in particular, I think, would have to be a discussion about nuclear capabilities that would be even more serious than that which is occurring today. And I fear that that would drive a similar debate over time in both Japan and Australia. So, so I think for countries that are closely aligned with the U.S., that, that is the challenge they would face. And it wouldn't just be about the four years of Trump. It would be about questions about whether the whole nature of the way the U.S. looks at the world and at Asia is shifting in a way that calls into question whether you can depend on Washington in the future. I think for the rest of the region, most of the countries of Southeast Asia, you know, a lot of the Pacific Islands, much of South Asia, the response would be disappointment, but kind of a shrug, because frankly, they're already disappointed in the United States. They're frustrated with engagement from the Biden team, just like they were frustrated by the Trump team. 
yeah, Trump's probably less good than than Biden in many ways, but but Biden's not perfect either from a lot of their standpoints. And so I think you'd see a lot of them say, well, you know, this is why we didn't bet on the U.S. in the first place. Um, so I actually think, strangely, the countries that would be most affected, at least initially, would be the ones that are closest to the U.S. And the, the ones that are already skeptical of the United States, you know, whether that's in Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand increasingly, I, I think they continue to be skeptical under Trump, but maybe less surprised than a lot of the traditional U.S. allies would be. And then what on earth can we be doing or should we be doing here in Canberra to help prepare? This comes down for me to the question of whether you can institutionalize alliances against destabilizing forces. And I think the answer is you can to some degree, and we should try to do those things. So I'll give you one example. This this may not so much be the Canberra thing, but it's definitely a Washington option, which is um, when Donald Trump tried to pull troops out of Korea, there were some of us who said, boy, it would be nice if there were legislation in Congress that prevented the president from going um, on his own to just cut troop levels that have been high in Korea, you know, 28,500 troops for decades for a good reason, and cutting them precipitously without some change in the reality on the ground would be very dangerous. And um, the president has to actually work with Congress on these things. So there was legislation passed that would actually restrict to some degree what Trump could do in this area. But I think we have to acknowledge that that kind of thing may work for a short period of time. But ultimately, if you have American political leaders who want to be less engaged in the rest of the world, they will be less engaged. And these institutional limitations won't work that effectively. But maybe you can slow that process down. So I think this is one way to look at um, some of the minilateral cooperation that we've seen, right? Um, you know what? The U.S. involvement in the Quad is sticky. It's not impossible to break, but it's just another thing that makes it harder for the U.S. to get out of the region. And if the U.S. gets out, it makes it easier for Australia to work with Japan and India. Mm. Um, same thing with, with Japan and Korea. You know, Japan, Korea, U.S. trilateral cooperation has been advancing a lot recently. I have this sneaking su suspicion that it wouldn't be advancing quite as quickly if the Japanese and the Koreans weren't pretty terrified about Trump coming back. And looking at the reality of what that would mean for them and realizing, boy, we would we don't want to be left isolated in Northeast Asia. We're going to have to work together. And if as part of working together, that helps tie the U.S. more into the region and makes it harder for the U.S. to just disengage overnight, then, then that's great. But but look, this is kind of putting a Band-Aid on something that can't really fundamentally be fixed if we elect a president for the four years who's trying to disengage from part of the world, as the Europeans saw, you know, it's going to do, eventually a president's going to have a pretty significant impact. And even the act of electing a president who wants to disengage in that way, I think sends some strong signals to the region that, as you and I have written about previously, encourages those countries to try and become more autonomous and independent of the U.S., which, which unfortunately, from an American standpoint, then undermines 
almost everything we're trying to do in the region. Is the overall sort of median point of US foreign policy shifting more towards isolationism? I mean, Trump is Trump, and in some ways, hopefully, he's sui generis. But looking at the GOP or elements of the Democratic Party over the next couple of decades, is it trending more isolationist? Or do you think that's still up for grabs? I think it's up for grabs. I think there are some remarkably irresponsible voices that are theoretically Republican who are saying things that, frankly, just don't make a lot of sense in this regard. You know, the idea that the United States has to challenge China, but that it has to spend every single defense dollar in Asia as a result, and it can't spend one dollar in Europe, or else it will be inevitable that the Chinese will, you know, rampage across Asia. That that just doesn't make much sense to me. Defense strategy, as we've been talking about, is about making choices. And almost none of those choices are binary. It's about how much priority you put on one region or another, or how much priority you put on one capability or another. I think the US is still quite supportive of engagement. And if you look at the polling data, the American people are supportive. Um, you have 90% of the US Senate that supports Ukraine. You've got three quarters of the House. What you have is a dysfunctional political system in the House where you know the fact that a small handful of Republicans strongly support strongly oppose aid to Ukraine means that you can't get anything through, even though three quarters of the House actually would be very happy to provide more aid. But I wouldn't overgeneralize this. And I do think, as you said, this is more about Trumpism than the basic logic of American strategy. And just a final thought on this, which is, you know, you've lived in the United States for a long time. You, you know us maybe better than we know ourselves. Um, I think at the end of the day, the American people still are pretty ideological. And, and, and I mean that both in the good way and in the bad way, right? Which is to say, you know, when the United States gets challenged and increasingly like watches what's going on in China, I think a lot of Americans look and, and think to themselves, yeah, actually, that's not great for the world. That's not what we want the world to look like. We need to push back against that. Um, I think at some point, some more reasonable people will look at what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and come to that same conclusion. So yes, isolationist voices are getting louder, but I wouldn't predetermine the you know idea that these are going to be the dominant voices moving forward. It, you know, Joe Biden has been as pro-alliance as any president in recent memory. So clearly it's not the dominant school of thought in the United States, but but it is something that I think we all have to pay much closer attention to. Yeah, just my quick two cents on this. I think there are two forces that are going in opposite directions. On the positive side, I think the Russia invasion has really given concrete, a vivid image, right, um, that the ordinary American can look at and say, oh yeah, there are still bad things that happen in the world. Um, and there is something we can do about it. It's Manichaean, right? There, it's, there's a good guy and a bad guy um, for the for the average American. So I think that's a positive kind of binding force, much like the Cold War kind of helped create sort of 
political consensus um, around a lot of American foreign policy. But pushing back the other side, you know, Martin Gurry's book, The Revolt of the Public, is simply that that foreign policy is one policy domain where you really do, I think, does benefit from um, elite consensus that is more insulated from public opinion um, because the choices are much more long-term and they're harder to see visualize concrete benefit, material benefits for voters who can very easily reach for the why aren't we spending money on schools and hospitals and building a wall. And so to the extent that you're seeing through social media and, 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 and other sort of modern technology forces, a revolt of the public, to use the, 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 the title of his book, pushing back against elite consensus, different sources of information that are you know, not channeled through the big four news networks um, and, and, and much less time for elite expertise as being credible that you know that pulls you back in the other direction um and which of those two forces prevails i guess is is to be determined one more question it might be a short one or it might be a longer one but i am curious what are the battlefield lessons from ukraine that you think are relevant to australia well i think this is actually quite relevant to australia and i i think many people have sort of missed the big takeaway from ukraine because many people have interpreted this as it is much harder now to attack and take territory than it used to be, right? And you can see this both with the challenges Russia had with the initial invasion, which many people thought was going to be very easy, and it turned out to be much more difficult. And there are lots of reasons for that, which have been you know gone over very thoughtfully by a number of experts. But also that Ukraine is struggling, right, to to make real battlefield gains. And they are making some progress, but it's been slower than many people expected. So a lot of people have described this as a sort of defense dominant world that we now live in, right? But I think the big takeaway from Ukraine is slightly different. And as you'll remember well, this goes back a little bit to when we were at Princeton and you know, dissertation work that I was doing. Um, I think what Ukraine shows is that we're increasingly in a denial dominant world, by which I mean, it is a lot easier to use relatively cheap systems to hold at risk very expensive platforms than it used to be, right? You can watch a UAV drop a small ammunition on an armored vehicle. Um, that didn't used to be possible. You can watch ships, you know, with ample protection, Russian uh, ships getting sunk by strikes from a great distance from missiles by Ukrainian forces. And in, in the air, the Russians are having a hard time operating aircraft against advanced air defenses, right? Um, and the Ukrainians are finding out many of these exact same lessons. So I think what you're seeing is that the cost of doing air denial and sea denial have actually gone way down. This is much easier than it used to be, which means that the price of projecting power has gone up because what you need to project power are big platforms. Those platforms often are expensive and they have lots of defenses. Um, and now there are ways to get around those defenses more easily and cheaply than it used to be possible. So, what does this mean for Australia um, and for the United States? It means the price of projecting power has gone up, which in some ways is not a good thing for the United States because the United States has spent 
decades getting really good at projecting power. Uh, but, but here's the positive part, right? Which is that Australia, the United States and others are basically status quo powers. We're not trying to project power into new areas and change the status quo. We're actually trying to prevent the status quo from changing. So if it's easier to deny air or deny sea to your opponents, it's also easier to prevent them from changing that status quo, which is why in some ways, when you, you know, come back to the defense strategic review, I think there's a really strong argument that actually the technological trends that would seem to be going against the United States, right? That projecting power has become more, more difficult and, and therefore might also seem to be going against Australia. are actually working for us, right? That if you're a Chinese destroyer trying to come through the Sundar Lombok Strait, sea denial is a lot easier than it used to be. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's easier. And that means that the difficulty of China getting close to Australia has gone up substantially. And the, the amount of money that Australia will have to pay in relative terms to defend its approaches has probably gone down a bit if we invest in the right stuff which is why some of the things, you know, long range unmanned air systems, for example, could be really effective at this. Submersibles that are also long range, therefore either, you know, nuclear powered or unmanned could also be really effective at sea denial. So I think those are the kinds of new capabilities that thankfully Australia is investing in, but I I think we'll see even more interest in those capabilities based on the lessons from Ukraine that we learn going forward. Great. Thanks, Zach. That's been a very interesting conversation. Um, I've been inviting guests recently before we wrap up um, to share a reflection or a memory of Alan. Uh, is something that you'd like to share with us? I, I just always respected Alan for so many reasons. And obviously his intellect was high on that list. But I have to say, I I think the thing that I appreciated most about Alan as, you know, a relatively young scholar myself when I started dealing with him was that he always took seriously the views of people that frankly he had no reason to take seriously. And I always felt that he he was both willing to listen but also to argue when he thought you were wrong, but in in a educational and friendly way. And there were many things that, you know, he thought I was wrong about. And I think on almost all of those, he's been proven correct. <laughs> but I, I, there just are not that many people who are so humble in their approach that they would, you know, engage in that way with younger experts. And it's one thing, you know, I, I think so many people that Alan dealt with always felt that it's not just that he was so deeply thoughtful and just a nice and genuine person, but his willingness to sort of engage everyone um, equally is is so rare and something I, I guess I don't see much at all in Washington. So I sort of had to go to Canberra or Sydney to get it most of the time. But I'll, as you know, I'm coming to Australia for the first time since COVID and it's going to be strange to go back and not spend a couple hours with Alan. Thanks, Zach. What you describe, of course, has been my exact experience on this podcast. So it's wonderful to hear that similar reflection coming from you. Okay. Well, our final segment of the podcast has been called Reading, Listening and Watching. It's a recommendations 
um, segment. I'll go first to give you a moment to think about what you'd like to recommend. Um, my son um, has finally gotten started on the Harry Potter books and uh, he's up to the fourth one now. And I find myself wanting to play the role of English teacher to talk about the themes because there's so much in these books. I really think they're wonderful. And so to get a bit of a cheat um, cheat sheet, I've been listening to a, a podcast that I've probably recommended some version of this in the past. It's called Binge Mode Harry Potter and it comes from the Ringer website. Uh, and this was recorded some years ago now. But in that, the the two hosts, Mallory Rubin and Jason Concepcion, go through every every aspect of the books and movies. They break them up into segments, so four or five chapters at a time. They go through the big themes. They go through the entire story arcs. They're definitely not for kids. There's a lot of adult content, as you might say, jokes and so forth, but also a lot of spoilers. Uh, but it, for me, it's been really helpful to re-engage with the material, given I don't have the time to reread the books or a tenth time to talk about them with my son. Um, but I can get some of the big themes and some of the big um, uh, sort of scenes and talk about them with him in, in a way that made me feel like the English teacher I think I would like to be at some point in my life. So binge mode Harry Potter is my recommendation. How about you, Zach? So I'll, I'll promote something that some listeners of the podcast may follow uh, which is a place called the Institute for the Study of War, which does a lot of the tracking of what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. And um, they do a lot of other great work also, and, and they sort of have an affiliation with the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, part of them is, is called our Critical Threats Program. But I, I've found that in this age where information is getting updated so quickly, it is really hard to know what's reliable. And to be candid with Twitter falling apart yeah. by the day, it's even more difficult. So I, I've really found the Institute for the Study of War to be very thoughtful and careful in their analysis. Um, and if folks haven't paid attention, they, they basically do a daily update that gives you a pretty good sense of what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. Um, and um, I think it's it's been incredibly valuable for me in trying to understand both the dynamics, but but you know I, I think going forward the next couple of months we need to understand what the course of the war will be, and a lot of this actually has to do with very small troop movements on the battlefield, um, and and whether we're seeing continued progress towards Ukraine's goals. And there's nowhere better for that than than ISW. So I commend them to folks that haven't already paid attention to their work. Terrific. Well, Zach, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. I hope we'll have the opportunity to do it again at some point in the future. But for now, really grateful for you appearing with us today. Thanks, Darren. So wonderful to be on. Thanks for having me. And that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. For research and audio editing today, I thank Corbin Duncan and, of course, as always, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.